Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. This is Danny Haifan. You're tuning into another episode of Cold War Brew. Apologies, a couple minutes late. Just trying to spread the word about this chat. So yeah, today I, I'm going to talk uh, uh, about 9-11. You know, it is September 11th. There's all sorts of memorials happening all across the United States. It's going to dominate news headlines, at least for today. This has been an ongoing process, two decades in the ma- making now. The war on terror that emerged from it has turned 21 years old. As I said on my stream yesterday, if you were there on the left lens, it's become an adult. And the legacy of the war on terror is really important to talk about, given that we're still living in it. And I believe it was a prelude to this new Cold War that we are now living through. So this chat is open, of course. So I definitely want to hear your thoughts. Uh, I want to know your questions. Any idea, you know, anything that you'd like to talk about as well, I like to keep that open for all of you, even as I am talking and just sharing my thoughts. So please do uh, get in the queue uh, if you have anything that you'd like to say. I do ask that comments themselves are kept at least initially to two minutes. I do circle back around, uh, especially if there are folks waiting. Uh, but if there aren't folks waiting, we can definitely have an exchange. But I do like to keep the initial comments to two minutes just because uh, it helps keep the flow of the conversation going. With that said, though, um, I'm going to get to you, Andrew, in a second. I'm just going to spend one minute giving you all sort of my take on the legacy of 9-11. I talked about this in my stream yesterday. And so real, really clear and really simple, right? Uh, of course, 9-11 itself, the tax that happened that killed several thousand people uh, in New York City. And then, of course, there were the attacks that happened on the Pentagon. And and uh, those uh, you know, have been completely decontextualized. Uh, I still believe there needs to be a thorough, real independent investigation. Never happened as to what exactly happened. But we know that even through the redacted 28-page report released by Congress. We know that there was Saudi involvement, Israeli involvement likely. Uh, We know that there was involvement by heavy U.S. allies in these attacks. But of course, we're never going to get to the bottom of it because it's been uh, shut down. And so I like to focus on what happened afterward because I do feel like, unfortunately, because of the suspicious character of these attacks, people can get really down the weeds in them. I think the most important thing, though, is that these attacks were used to forward a particular agenda. The agenda of U.S. domination, unipolarity, and uh, imperialism to cement the end of history, to roll through and destroy any country Uh, and destabilize any country that was resisting imperialism or that continued to exist as a counterweight to imperialism and also erect a massive warfare state and a surveillance state to ensure that, one, any movement would be suffocated in its crib, both at home and abroad, any nation that resisted abroad or that had any kind of independence or sovereignty would be destabilized on the way to targeting Russia and China. That's why I believe it's a prelude to the new Cold War, because all of the targets that the war on terror had were ultimately about encroaching closer and closer to eradicating and destabilizing further uh, nations that the United States in the first Cold War had uh, set its sights on um, for many decades prior. So it's all about a larger strategy of domination, of cementing the domination of American capital and American hegemony. And the internal or domestic surveillance state that was erected, in my opinion, was about universalizing what was used on social movements in the past in order to uh, create such a strong mechanism of social control that people would fear any kind of challenge, any kind of movement that would challenge 
the empire, that would challenge capitalism, that would challenge the injustice of the system. And I believe that was a lot about what the response to 9-11 was about. And so that's just a brief summary. Of course, we're going to get into, I'm sure, uh, hopefully a really good conversation here. I have Andrew in the queue to start us off, and I'll just bring him in now. Uh, Andrew, you are the next, you are the first caller. Hey, Danny. Hi. Hey, I um, I think just really briefly, what I, what I want to ask about actually is a little bit about the sources and the statements made in the the UN report that you did a breakdown on. Um, but first, I would just say that yeah, I think that um, for the U.S. to not ever push back on at least the Saudis and immediately kind of um, use 9-11 as a pretext to create wars in, in different countries besides the one that was really primarily responsible, um, I think is really telling. Um, it's really telling that they really didn't have an intention of, of holding the people who committed that particular attack accountable or, or even if they were not interested in any kind of like justice for the families, um, you know, not even any kind of like base motivation for revenge. Um, but yeah, I was, my actual question is, uh, with regards to the, the sources for that UN report on Xinjiang is in going through some of their sources, there's like, um, that one website that's kind of a, a compendium of different news sources. It's like the, I think it's the, the Uyghur human rights project, the UHRP. Yep. Um, they just have this massive PDF of sources. And a lot of them, if you look into where the sources are from, you can find Radio Free Asia in there and you can find Adrian Zentz. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about, I know you went through, um, I just listened to the beginning of your video and you were talking about the really, the lack of uh, explanation of methodology and really poor research techniques, which I think is a, a very good point to begin with. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the sources and whether or not you see it as like uh, a circle of, of people and agencies kind of uh, corroborating each other's work that's also incestuously kind of sourcing from each other's work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for bringing this up. I do think it's very relevant actually to our conversation. Um on the one hand, I mean, you pointed out something too. Like, I I do go over sources later on in the video, but uh, you even bring up one. I just pulled up the report again, and right away on the first page, that you pointed out the Uyghur Human Rights Project, as uh, some may know, that is uh, underneath the World Uyghur Congress, the NED-funded World Uyghur Congress. It is a uh, an offshoot and and very much a questionable source since it is tied to U.S. government funding. So even even just right in the beginning, you've pointed out just uh, a, a huge problem here. And yes, I mean, the sources, and this is very related to the war on terror, because uh, what these, what what the, this, uh, you could say, uh, a small handful of organizations, and, and a lot of the sources also surround uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, both directly and also through one of their offshoots called the Xinjiang Victims Database, which is directly related to ASBI. And so all of these U.S.-funded, U.S. literally U.S. government-funded agencies, their entire purpose is to create a narrative, not to investigate human rights, not to understand what actually is happening in China or is Xinjiang is to create a narrative about Xinjiang that can be sold to the Western populace, to the U.S. populace, as a humanitarian interventionism, right? That's the narrative that they're trying to sell, that China is committing human rights abuses, genocide, cultural genocide, placing Uyghurs in concentration camps, and uh, they don't bother with providing any semblance of what could be considered credible evidence beyond, let's say, ASBI's uh, Nathan Rooser providing Google image, Earth images 
of certain locations in Xinjiang, which have since been debunked as schools or other public institutions, or whether it's uh, Adrian Zen's literally fudging up numbers saying 80% of Uyghur women are, uh, are forced uh, sterilized when actually the real number is that uh, there is an, about an 8% increase in the use of birth control and family planning methods. So these are the these are the kind of tactics that are used. It's all about creating atrocity propaganda. And in this report, I I, I began my stream talking about the research methodology because it's very connected to the sources. So they they supposedly we don't even know who wrote this report. This is how bad the report is. We don't even know who wrote it. Because Michelle Bachelet did not even sign off on it. She's not even anywhere to be found. Literally, she worked all the way until the day it was released. And she's nowhere to be found on the report. And I cited later in that stream someone who pointed out that in prior reports on other issues like Yemen, she is always giving a foreword. And she, her picture is there as the author. Because this is the office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights at the UN. It's it's not a bunch of people. She works with a team, but she is the High Commissioner. And she is the one who ostensibly should be writing this report or at least having a huge say in writing this report. And we don't even know that because she's nowhere to be found. And then they say they interview 40 people but we don't even know how they did this. Where And they're all abroad. They say that they're Kazakhs and Uyghurs. We don't have any transcripts. We don't have any questionnaires. We have nothing to base what they're doing this off of. And then when you look at the sources, it just puts the cherry on top, I think. You look at the sources, it's all, for the most part, other than some strange distortions and all kinds of unofficial translations of Chinese documents, which they claim they translated. Other than that, it's relying upon the same atrocity propagandists, the same anti-China forces like Adrian Zenz, who has long been exposed as a far-right Christian fundamentalist who all his whole crusade is uh, 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 you know, he thinks he's on a crusade, uh, 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 anointed by God to go on this crusade to destroy the Communist Party of China. I mean, this is this couldn't be any more politicized. And uh, Adrian Zenz works for the Victims of Memorial Communism Foundation, which was literally founded by Congress after the Soviet Union fell to smear socialism all around the world to create a narrative that socialist countries killed all sorts of people and he works as the so-called china expert there so uh, in their china studies department or something like that i think he's the only one so you know this he, he these sources are not to be trusted and it's worse than that in my opinion it is a, a you know, it is an operation. It is a psychological operation that is meant to create a worldview among people so that sanctions on Xinjiang can be justified, so that even the entire uh, new Cold War agenda on China can be justified. Uh, and, and this includes the militarization, because if you can convince people, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, all these flashpoint issues that have been uh, literally like made up by U.S.-backed forces, if you can get people to believe that there's something really scary happening over there, then you can do it not only whatever you want over there uh, to China, but then you can also um, deflect away from uh, what we really should be talking about uh, uh, and, and, and focusing on more. I always say I'm so sick of talking about this, not because it's not important, not because the questions you raise are not important, but it's been so many years now of this kind of alarmism, right, uh, being sown, this like atrocity propaganda constantly coming up. And it's just striking how much the corporate media and the political class can manipulate emotions based on how they sell misinformation 
so that we don't even think twice or blink twice. I mean, I know people here are thinking twice and uh, are there, but uh, in terms of the general public, to be able to have most people not even thinking about U.S.-backed atrocities in Yemen or uh, U.S.-backed atrocities in Palestine or the U.S.-backed atrocities in Ukraine or, you know, we can go on and on and on uh, uh, about, uh, about what the U.S. is doing and what it has done especially since 9-11, the, mil- the, the million plus people killed, the trillions spent, the destabilization campaigns in uh, uh, you know, more than a dozen countries. Like we're, we're talking about uh, something that isn't thought twice for most people, but, if, but because they can just turn on the news or pick up a page in the New York Times or uh, uh, what have you, or even just Reuters and, and all of these sources just picking up this report and saying, it's fact, it's credible, it's evidence, uh, people will, what else are they to think when they are only getting this very narrow, very propagandistic uh, side of the story? So yeah, these sources are a problem. The Uyghur Human Rights Project is an NED funded organization. It's where uh, Tusserne Ziawudin, I don't know if you remember her from back in 2020 when Democracy Now! was having her and Adrian Zenz on to talk about um, this like forced sexual assault and rape that was happening. And then we found out her history is with this organization was uh, uh, she migrated to Kazakhstan. She somehow got a passport out of China she at one time said to BuzzFeed that there wasn't any sexual assault and then another and then she changed her tune after connecting to the Uyghur Human Rights Project. So there's also so many there's just so many aspects to this. Um, so uh, okay, so I see you in the chat, Andrew. Yeah, I will address that. And then, you know, if you have any comments after this, uh, you can certainly come back. But uh, you mentioned um, can I talk about the softened claims over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think it was beginning. So in 2017, the camp, the camps, the concentration camps were the focus, right? So you had ASBI, you had Adrian Zenz talking about million people in concentration camps. And then it was pretty thoroughly deboned by places like the gray zone talking about, well, the network for Chinese human rights defenders interviewed eight people, they are funded by the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy. It's kind of impossible to get that number from interviews with eight people who also happen to be exiles, kind of similar to this U.N. report. But um, then uh, that was kind of, you know, over the years, I was kind of walked back because ASBI tried to pick it up and they were they were atta- they, they were counted pretty heavily. I mean, ASBI, Nathan Rooster blocked me. He blocked a whole bunch of people. So did Adrian Zenz because they were being pushed back upon. And uh, the claims, though, in the corporate media began to soften. Even just last year, you had, uh, I believe it was the Associated Press doing a whole uh, kind of, I I wouldn't call it an investigation, but kind of a review after a trip there and talking about how, oh, yeah, no, there wasn't really genocide happening, but people, I I think, are scared, but uh, there is no genocide. So, yeah, the genocide claims came right after the concentration camp claims uh, those stayed pretty loud for uh, a year to two years, and then they started to be walked back, right? Started to become cultural genocide. These sources started to say it's not that they're killing people because you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't say that Uyghurs were being eliminated because the Uyghur population was increasing, standards of living were increasing, life expectancy was increasing. So how could you say that Uyghur people were being eliminated? But it's about their culture. So you had Radio Free Asia. The U.S. Agency for Global Media, which funds them, uh, the former CIA-backed uh, uh, Board of Broadcasting Governors, now uh, rebranded. You had all these sources now talking about cultural genocide. But even that has dissipated and died down. And you see that even just in the last four months, right, from Michelle Bachelet's visit, which is not cited in this U.N. report at all, it's not there, you don't get anything from the own high commissioner who just uh, was leaving office, right? How suspicious is this? You don't even mention the trip she took for five days to Xinjiang. And then you uh, don't even mention both Michelle Bachelet 
after May 28th, after she came back from her visit, she gave her a statement. Neither she nor this report says genocide. And of course, there's other claims like forced labor, which have uh, uh, remained, but they, they don't get as much emphasis because I think the forced labor claim, even if it were 100% true, which it's pretty obvious that it's not true if wages are rising, if people are moving freely, if they're going to Guangzhou, for example, to work in industries that pay more, uh, it's pretty obvious that that's more voluntary uh, than it is forced, right? The idea is that these Uyghurs are being forced to work on the cotton fields, right? Almost this kind of uh, slavery, right? Chattel slavery model. And that, that's been thorough. That, they won't even go too far deeply into that anymore because that's pretty easy to debunk. And it opens a big, massive can of worms as even the ACLU has reported recently that the United States is using forced labor in prisons. I mean, California forces prisoners to put out their fires for a dollar an hour or less. I mean, we're talking about the most egregious um, form of forced labor you could think of in the modern era. And this country is trying to say China's doing it to Uyghurs, while Uyghurs are saying, well, actually, cotton, the cotton industry is pretty mechanized. And if we get on one of these machines and help cultivate the cotton, we get paid 80, 90, 100,000 RMB per year. Uh, it's a pretty good deal for us. Uh, that doesn't sound like forced labor. So yes, the claims have been walked back. Uh, they've softened. Now this report, despite all of the ridiculous sources they use who have claimed genocide in the past and concentration camps in the past, they won't go that far. All they'll say is that there are concerns about human rights abuses. And so that is a huge shift. And it's a very rapid one. We're talking, this is about five years old, this campaign, this slander campaign. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, in 2015, 16, 14, you could find mainstream media sources talking about the problem of terrorism in China, in Xinjiang, as a problem of terrorism. And then suddenly, when there is a need to conduct this anti-China campaign and to accelerate it uh, uh, at the end of Obama po- to into Trump, that this narrative uh, emerged and now it is dying down. So... Andrew also said uh, proximity to Afghanistan. Yeah, the um, now they're called uh, the uh, what are they called? They, they were called the East Turkestan uh, Islam uh, Islamic Movement (ETIM). Now they're taught. Uh, I believe they're called the uh, TIP, the Turkish Islamic Party. I believe. So they rebranded, but um, you know. Yeah, there are deep connections. There, the borders of Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, places where a lot of terrorism has unfortunately been able to fester and grow. Not least because the U.S. began that process in 1979. Uh, that became a problem for China, and uh, that border that's shared there is a critical one uh, because. You know, in the 90s, China was talking about and there were some reports about how the CIA was literally helping facilitate the training of these radicalized Uyghurs so that they could fight elsewhere. And then they would come back and they would commit attacks at home. But that wasn't really the concern of, let's say, the CIA. The concern was finding more militants to fight in other parts uh, of that region to continue. to uh, foment, continue this process of destabilization. And, um, you know, it had an effect on China. There were a lot of attacks. There were hundreds of them, uh, thousands either killed or injured. And, um, you know, China responded. So it's a really important point to make that that border does exist. And that this war on terror, right, you have people like... um, Darren Byler, right, who works for the Wilson Center. Uh, He's a really sad, sad individual. This guy, Darren Byler, who's literally a a, a Gulf monarchy slash uh, U.S. government-funded so-called researcher, loves to write these papers about how China is committing 
these broad crimes, and the report does it too, these possible broad uh, sweeping interpretations of terrorism in order to repress the Uyghurs. Now, this sounds very familiar, right? It sounds like a total projection of what the United States did to Muslims, to Arabs, and to anybody it really wanted to do to, to target uh, both at home and abroad uh, in order to forward its domination and, and its hegemony and to enhance the level of fear in society to increase the rate of exploitation generally. That's what happened, uh, and that's what really has happened. But, of course... It is so convenient to paint China, right? It's like China's an imperialist. China is committing its own, it has its own war on terror. And the excessive focus on this without any, uh, uh, under, without any acknowledgement of the contradictions. Oh, you say repression, huh? Then why is it that Uyghurs who were once living uh, much lower standards of life to the rest of the population and the Han population for the most part, uh, prior to 1949, why is it that ever since 1949, Uyghurs have been getting closer and closer and closer to parity at all in terms of all uh, standard, you know, all indicators of standard of living, social indicators? Uh, that's generally not the case. You can't say the same about indigenous people. You can't say the same about black people in the United States. You can't say the same. Indigenous people lost four years of their life expectancy in a matter of two since uh, during the pandemic. I mean. Uh, an increase that is double, uh, uh, a decrease that is double that of white Americans. Why is that in the United States? Why is it that there is this projection? And that's never talked about. But uh, anyway, you got me on a roll. You got me on a on a rant. Um, but uh, I see you still in the queue, Andrew. I, I can let you respond if you have anything that you would like to um, add or 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 not. Because nobody, anyone else too, please jump in. Yeah, no, the only other thing I was going to say is, um, you know, kind of another parallel within the war on terror is northern Iraq, like with the U.S. invasion in 03. Um, one of the only things that they accomplished was they they kind of spurred the creation of this um, like Kurdish autonomous region in Iraq called Bakur. And that is basically ruled by. Uh, the Barzani family, who are exorbitantly wealthy, they, they mm-hmm. more or less as monarchs with a formalized, um, you know, bureaucratic democracy b- below them. Um, and could you talk a little bit like I can't remember the name of that family. I thought you mentioned them a minute ago, who basically are would be poised to run Xinjiang where, if it were to secede or or gain more autonomy than the region already has from Beijing, um, it would basically just be run by this family, would it not? Yeah, it would be, it would likely be, well, <laughs> interesting. I'm not, I'm not aware of a particular family like the Berzani's, but it is this party. Um, and I wouldn't even call it a party. It's kind of like this organized exile community that, um, has deep connections to these U.S. funded organizations. Uh, they uh, they don't really. It's funny because I couldn't imagine like the Turkish Islamic Party is uh, because of how China has progressed in its um, de-radicalization program doesn't really have an organized basis anymore. That's why there's all these exiles living abroad. They're being protected by the West and being kind of placed as the messengers for this narrative, right? That's their role now. But uh, the ETIM, which preceded this rebrand, that was the terrorist organization that was once on the U.S. terrorist uh, watch list and and I believe um, the U.N.'s as well. Uh, they um, they would have loved to. Now it's not even a question, you know, it's not the Kurdish situation. It's a very good point and I think a very interesting comparison because the Iraqi Kurdish family, this like uh, oligarchic monarchical U.S. propped up uh, Barzani family, like that wasn't able to happen in China because China was able to take care of the problem arguably in a way that I think baffles the mind because one of the legacies of war on terror is 
only understanding social problems through the lens of violence, right? What did the United States do to the so-called quote-unquote terrorism problem, which was largely its own doing? It bombed multiple countries, more than seven countries, and also created a, a surveillance state, which is violence, right? The, what did, we're talking about uh, not only drone strikes abroad, but the use of surveillance technology and the repression of journalists. I mean, I don't think the um, repression of Edward Snowden or Julian Assange would have been the same if this war on terror didn't happen in the way that it did. Uh, there was a normalization of this kind of oppression uh, because of the way that fear was stoked. And so it's hard, I think, for a lot of people. I think it's easier for a lot of people now that there is more of a critical eye on those policies over the years. But it's hard to see that there could be another possibility, another way of addressing terrorism. And China addressed it much differently. Uh, uh, whatever people want to think about, whatever level of coercion or um, the need to force some who committed crimes or who are maybe going to do, you know, conduct these attacks or running with people who were, whatever you think of, whatever coercive aspect there is to that, the fact of the matter is that going somewhere to go to school and to work and then come back to society to actually live normally that's kind of like the narrative of how we've been taught prisons are supposed to work in the United States that's never been applied. But if you look at how uh, the Uyghur population is living and that segment that has had to uh, go through that process, it seems like it's a much more humane process. It, it's one that I think you know we would expect uh, from uh, uh, any kind of progressive or any kind of uh, left or anyone who thinks that there needs to be a different, there needs to be an alternative and a different way of going about this problem. It can't just be um, spy, jail, kill. That's what we've been told how to address terrorism here. It also has to be, well, what is the root of this problem? And I think the big issue is is that you know the United States destroyed Iraq, destroyed Afghanistan, literally fomented the rise of ISIS and all kinds of other terrorist offshoots. So we can't expect that people are just going to be automatically thinking, oh yeah, there can be a different way of going about it. Maybe don't do that and maybe support initiatives that can help uh, uh, get rid of the roots of why people may join certain groups. Um, but that's that's how China literally follow with the, a lot of what the UN uh, su supports and has been called a genocidal country anyway, right? A genocidal country, a racist country, uh, ethnic, you know, cultural genocide, all of that. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's it's a different it's just it was a different approach. And it's one that surely can seem abnormal to a society that has gone through two decades of now 21 years of this conditioning process that violence and war is the only way to address any problem, including terrorism. Um, and I have another caller um, in here, so I'm going to put them in. It's a. Uh, uh, Sinway, Chinway, am I saying it correctly? Well, I'm going to make you the next caller and you are um, able to speak. All right. Thank you. Uh, it's um, Sinway, by the way. Um, all right. So I was listening to what, Political Matrix last night. I asked a question and they were, when they came to talk about the Queen's death, they mentioned about, well, um, I asked a question about what, here's this whole like behind the scenes, a powerful, Families, people, all in it, Illuminati based, etc. Um, I asked the question, and we'll want to see if you could confirm if, like, any powerful, I don't know, Chinese or Russians people are part of that <clears throat> rich, powerful group that manipulates things behind the scenes. It'd be like, well, especially the bankers in particular, for example. Um. <clears throat> Um, but so, so I guess that's out of curiosity. You know, that's not mm -hmm. quite related, <laughs> not quite related to nine eleven. But mm 
that's all right. Um, I can I can talk about this. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is something I am kind of countered with um, when I talk about Russia and China, right? Because it's often like, oh, Russia and China, they have oligarchs too. They have capitalists too. And especially with China, because China did have a reform and opening up process, which did uh, create a certain level of corruption, but a lot—I mean, a lot of that corruption, especially since uh, 2011, has uh, kind of been based in how uh, certain f- forces in China that got wealthy, they began to do things abroad. You know, deal with American capitalists, deal with Western capitalists. Um, and China really cleaned it up internally, as well as now clamping down on a lot of the international stuff, but especially the internal stuff. Um, but, you know, I think with China, I'll say this about China, because I think Russia is different. Uh, uh, China, you know, China doesn't have a capitalist ruling class. So they do have capitalists and some of these capitalists did, um, you know, were able to, uh, begin to for uh, foster connections in certain industries real estate etc um but in partnership with you know american capitalists western capitalists it wasn't like china just doing it all on its own chinese doing it all on their own but i would separate that from the government policy because china itself doesn't have capitalists that rule over the society right they don't they can't own the land they can't really influence policy Right. They are kind of influenced. If you ever heard uh, Eric Lee, who's a venture capitalist, talk about it, uh, he says, and you could even listen to Jack Ma, who everyone said disappeared, but he has not disappeared. Uh, they will both say that actually the party tells them what to do. <laughs> like the party, the government says, we want to do this and this is how you're going to fit in. Um, so it's a different orientation. And I, so I wouldn't say that there's any like Chinese capitalists working behind the scenes with imperialists and, and, and big finance capital. There are definitely some who have been able to get rich abroad and work with those forces to get rich themselves. But internally in China, it's had, I would say, a negligible impact on policy there. And when it has had an impact on policy there, there's this kind of cleanup process, right? Like uh, higher regulations, punishments, um, and, uh, you know, oftentimes stripping wealth. I mean, look what's happened to um, um, Evergrande, right? Like Evergrande, a lot of those uh, uh, rich investors have, have been stripped of a lot of their investments because of their poor behavior. Um so that's where I would differentiate, right, between the U.S. and the West, which allows their finance, especially finance capital in, in, in China, most of the banks are public, state-owned, more than 80% of them. So I would say uh, uh, overall, any dealings that Chinese capitalists are making abroad, they are doing so um, kind of in violation to China's own monetary policy, and some have been punished. Uh, we just saw that Canadian billionaire, uh, the Chinese Canadian billionaire, who was punished by China. Um, but uh, in terms of China's own monetary policy, what it does control internally is just different, right? There, there you, I wouldn't say anyone from the People's Bank of China or the China Construction Bank. Uh, I don't think you they're working behind the scenes with uh, American finance capitals and Western finance capitals because it wouldn't benefit them because they would just get punished right away because it's a state-owned company, state-owned banks, and uh, there would be a lot of clampdown. And there has been. The anti-corruption campaign has been uh, hugely successful in that way over the last decade or so. So that's China. With Russia, the situation's a little, I mean, China is a bigger country, a bigger economy, still underdeveloped though, so not even at the scale of uh, um, the United States. And while it has surpassed the West in a lot of ways, uh, there is this dual underdevelopment where there's been a lot of production, a lot of technological advancement, but, um, you know, China started from a very low level. And so there are definitely some areas where it still lags behind most, most of the West, most of Europe and the U S. So with Russia, I mean, the situation is even more dire. And I think Russia, uh, its economy, while it's, its government is definitely more sovereign and more independent. I would say its economy 
is more neo-colonial, meaning that um, its economy is small. It's been largely, um, uh, it was largely gutted, right? The Soviet kind of industrial base was largely gutted um, and standards of living fall, fell intensely um, before Vladimir Putin got in. And then when Vladimir Putin and the United Russia Party uh, changed course, well, they were able to nationalize and raise standards of living. It's still a very small economy. And given the political situation and now the economic warfare, I don't see Russia industrializing past where it has been, which is mainly focused on defense and energy. I don't see that really changing because of the global situation. And so while, of course, a lot of, there were some Russians who became oligarchs who were able to get rich, Putin clamped down on a lot of that internally, but I wouldn't put their class of oligarchs wherever they have gone, because there are a lot that have gone away internationally. I would put them well below influence, in terms of influence and power, well below that of American and Western financiers on Downing Street and on Wall Street, for example. So that's that's just my brief answer to that. Um, you know, I would say that there there are definitely levels to it. And with China, I would say it's more individualized. And with Russia's oligarchic class that was allowed to emerge and, and was propped up after the fall of the Soviet Union, I would say they have been weakened by Putin and the Russian government. And then their influence abroad is very weak. It's very weak. I would say it's not it's negligible. Um uh, I, Amanda, you were in the queue. Uh, if you want to come back, uh, please do. Um, before I, I take a response, uh, how long have I how long have I been here now? Uh, okay, forty one minutes. I'll probably stay on for about an hour, uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, so, uh, KFOK said, "Can I add something else? Please do add anything in the chat. I can address." But I'm going to put in a, a, a scene way. If you have any um, uh, responses, I'll, I'm putting you back in now. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, what I was going to add in is like, um, even I think even though China is like rising economically, the other countries, especially the Western, don't respect them because of military. It's like mm-hmm. a, a good analogy I heard on the video last night about it's like um the bully um the bullies and their victim and like what and like one of their victims starts toughening up bands fighting back or well how can i say like no i like it it show it comes stronger but they don't exactly throw a punch but the boy can tell oh they have like a bigger stick now but they're not using it so it's like not really respect not really respect you because you don't have the brute strength kind of thing so that's also I was going to add so it's Mm. so despite China being economically powerful it's like still no respect because of military Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah I mean that's definitely um, yeah that's definitely true and I think too that the lack of respect to China is, uh, yeah, it definitely has to do with the fact that they won't play ball militarily. I mean, China has a strong, um, has a strong People's Liberation Army is, you know, has a budget of 200 billion U.S. dollars and has advanced technology, weaponry, certainly is ready to defend from any kind of aggression that anyone the U.S. or otherwise can throw at it. But I think where the lack of respect comes in is the fact that China does not use... It's funny, when I was in China, anyone I ever speak to from China, and I know uh, more than a few people from the West who live in China, and they always say, and I've heard this probably more than a dozen times, that the People's Liberation Army is more like local police for China than it is... Uh, than it is really a military that has any kind of expansionist um, dream. It's really about uh, uh, defense. It's all about defense. 
And so when people go into the People's Liberation Army, when Chinese people enter it, they don't go in thinking, I'm going to go abroad and I'm going to fight, um, you know, wars. They think at the most that they're both going to they're going to uh, uh, defend uh, China, that they're going to defend China's interests and possibly maybe end up on some U.N. peacekeeping mission because China does send a lot of people on those. But it's a different way of thinking, right? Most people think of it as like uh, 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 nothing like defending freedoms abroad or anything like that, not at all. And so I think the lack of respect comes from that China won't deploy its military in a way that serves U.S. interests and Europe's interests. It only has a military to uh, defend itself and that's why it has, I think, one singular base at the request of Djibouti to defend its uh, infrastructure projects from um, instability. And there's a terrorism and things like that that happen in Djibouti. So uh, they have one singular base there in Africa and nowhere else. And, uh, you know, China is a thorn when it comes to a lot of U.S. foreign policy ventures. China opposes sanctions. China opposes all U.S. wars, especially since the Libya debacle where they abstained from that U.N. resolution vote. So um, I'm going to allow actually Amanda to call in. Um, and uh, but, yeah, thank you for for the comment, Sinway. Uh, so Amanda is back. So hello. Uh, you are now the next caller. Hello, sorry, I was having trouble with my connection. Ooh, am I echoing? That's okay. Uh, not on my end. Okay. Then, okay, good, good. How are you doing today? Doing okay, doing okay. How about yourself? Not too bad. Thank you for the nicety. Um, so uh, the reason I kind of, I, I, I hung back up, but then I've called in. So the reason I called in is kind of a tongue-in-cheek, kind of more like a thought experiment. So uh, more than like a, a thing that I think would actually happen, but just as a thought experiment, because I know the Belt and Road Initiative is doing a lot for infrastructure in Africa for, for Africans. And, you know, I hear the United States infrastructure is really shit. And needs a lot of help. Mm-hmm. I mean, do yeah. I need to finish that thought, or or can you <laughs> no, can you work from like there? The, <laughs> sounds like the U.S. <laughs> needs to join the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, that is that. I mean. <laughs> that was the that was the that was the conclusion that I was coming yeah. to you. And like I said, I don't know. If, I mean, it seems like would be. Uh, we would have to lose a war to do that because I don't think people in the United—I think people in the United States, even even people that are like closer to me, which is radically left of progressive. So you know, I think there's it would it might be a, it would be a really a um, massive shift of of American paradigm to actually have it happen. But I mean. Come on. Is there a way? Can we have shell companies? I mean, there's corporations that do this kind of stuff all the time. Maybe just California, state of California. Maybe as individual states. Do you yeah. think that would get us kicked out of the out of the united part of the United States? Well, what's interesting about this, Amanda, is that, um, you know, I did a report on high speed, uh, an analysis on a report on high speed rail where um, – this prominent think tank with a lot of Clinton, neocon, neoliberal kind of forces called the uh, it's the ITIF Innovation Technology Information Technology Innovation Foundation. And when I did that, I, and maybe I'll put that article in the chat before I depart here. But when I did that analysis of their, it was like a huge twenty thousand plus word report where they talked about how bad China's high-speed rail is for high-speed rail. I kid you not, that was their argument. Uh, Their main opposition to China's high-speed rail was that China would not allow its market for rail, for high-speed rail internally, to be dominated by 
external forces, meaning foreign, Western companies, U.S. companies, which they feel, people like that feel, is cheating. So they how feel dare cheating. they? How dare they? <laughs> how, how dare they grow their industry? And what's so ironic is that the same report will talk about how China has a deep relationship with the U.S. and the West on rail, that they do export a low, and this is the kicker, right? Low value added um, uh, technology to the United States because that's all that the U.S. and Europe will allow for because – and they don't say this, but that's all they'll allow for, because the they again it's this competition, right? The so-called competition narrative is, oh no, we cannot dare be look like we are behind in anything. So yeah, we will take old train cars from China, right? The technology, the 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 parts needed to build train cars from China, like the MBTA, a lot of it in Boston where I grew up, it's uh, built by the by by uh, uh, kind of this low value added technology and raw materials. But now that China has advanced, right, many years past that since 2008, now the United States says, absolutely not. We're not, we, we could not import or learn from or cooperate on this issue, despite the fact that it's so desperately needed, not just because the environment kind of depends on this technology moving forward everywhere, but also because uh, it would just massively improve the lives of people, working people, all people really um, in this country and beyond. But the, the problem with China's high-speed rail is that the U.S., these big monopolists and, and, and capitalists and bankers, like they want to own it basically. And they not only – they don't want to own it so they can make it. They want to own it so they can – basically siphon it off like like what austerity does they want to they want to commit austerity to china's high-speed rail model and china's like absolutely not you can work with us you want to come into a joint venture with us sure but guess what 50 plus percent of the profit is coming back to china and china is clear that high-speed rail is not a big profitable venture you got to lay down money you got to lay down capital that it, that's the nature of the business. It's a very new industry. It's uh, one that in China is all government controlled. It's all state owned because it has to be because private companies are like, ooh, we, we can't lay down what $20 million uh, uh, per kilometer of high speed rail. And that we definitely can't do that. Like that's that's the cost, you know. Um, so uh, um, for it to be well made, you know, and, and so. Your point is so America, a good one, made in, America made in America made in China. <laughs> as long as it is China being subservient and China being having right, this has been the big problem with China is that it was all well and good when China w- uh, was a, a, a very low wage country that only produced the lowest value added industrial. Uh, products and raw materials for uh, the the West's development, for the U.S.'s development. But when China began to advance well beyond that, that's when China became a big problem because now China is, you know, able to stand up for itself and also able to offer uh, to the world uh, not only what the U.S. could back in the day, but also with different with a different relationship. Like, yes, you can get state-of-the-art telecommunications technology from China, and you don't have to worry about whether they're going to destroy your country, loot it, and uh, overthrow the government and control your politics and all of that. So that's the big issue with China. And But to be States- fair, with telecommunications, isn't it maybe um, – I mean, I would worry about that for purposes of is my – is it going to be secure from China? Mm. I mean, I'm not saying I'm yeah. not saying they, they they don't. I'm not saying that they do or they don't. It's uh, that right. would be that might be my in, first. In, and of course, I'm sure that I'm I, I'm I've been steeped in all the propaganda all my life too. So, <laughs> pardon pardon my my racism or or lack of knowledge. You know, well, that's okay. I mean, look, China, China definitely has the technology to do this. I mean, China just came out. I was talking about this on stream yesterday. They caught the NSA. So this is what I was talking about yesterday on my stream. One of the, the ways that the 
war on terror was a prelude to the new Cold War is that the U.S. intelligence agencies are literally using the same technology that they used throughout the duration of the war on terror to spy on, you know, allies and all people, et cetera. Now they're using it on their new foes, right? Russia and China, arguably they've been using it since the beginning, but now it's being found out, right? China released a report saying that uh, one of their big polytechnic universities was hacked by the NSA and that more than like 200 gigabytes of cr- uh, critical data research, um, you know, uh, all of that was stolen and um, so China certainly has the technology, right? And, and definitely in China, it's not like there isn't a, a, a great firewall and there isn't a capacity to, uh, to con- conduct surveillance. But at the same time, right, when it comes to mutual relations and, co-op- and, and relations with other countries, I think one of the reasons why there's so much trust in China's model is because now we do have evidence that China doesn't interfere in the politics of other countries, right? Like we can't say that Venezuela or, you know, we can run off a whole host of countries, Russia. um, We can't say that their politics have been uh, influenced by a a, a deep relationship with China at any level. So, So I think that's the difference there is that even if they do have the capacity... It's just not in the interest. It's not. In the, right. It wouldn't be in, the, in China's best interest anyway, because it would just not make them any friends. <laughs> like, why right. go with the, like why go with just another like the devil you know versus the devil you know? Why, why go with a different partner if they're just going to act the same as your old one? You know, a different master if they're going to act the same as your old one. Um, Thank you for engaging in the conversation. I appreciate yeah, no you so much. Keep it up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so, anyway, you know, this is a good program so far. If anyone else wants to jump in the queue, please do. I think we touched on a lot, even though we're going on. You know, I appreciate it. I get it. I talk a lot about China. So, I'm always willing. I think it's all interconnected. Always willing to connect those dots because it is very related. Um, and so... Yeah, like I remember actually that question about surveillance in China. I remember, you know, not too long ago, and it still is kind of a talking point. It's like all this concern about TikTok. I can't stand that app, man. The people on that app, I don't even know what people are doing on that app. Uh, Generation Z's got, uh, not to judge them or anything, but uh, it's just a lot of work and a lot of time. And so I do question TikTok's utility in that way. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that um, there's always concern about TikTok spying on us, right? And China literally was like during this time under Trump, it's like, um, you know, that's like a private company, right? Like they're like they're like, oh, you know, if and they ended up selling it. I think I think uh, the owners of TikTok ended up selling it to was it Microsoft or something? I remember or something like that. And now it's, but you know, that is to say that. There just wasn't any interest from the Chinese government on this kind of thing. You know, it it wasn't like, oh, my God, TikTok is so valuable because we're surveilling Americans. That was all kind of a story made up because, as someone said in the chat, it's like just as we are probably not worried about drone strikes or like uh, or have any tangible evidence that we should worry about China collecting our data not only does China have evidence of the opposite happening to them, this is the second time this ha- uh, this this was reported on um, that the CIA, right, it was the NSA now, the CIA, not uh, not a few years before, that was caught stealing China's data, um, and so not only is there tangible evidence of that happening, but we don't have any tangible evidence that we should be worrying about China because, well, you know. What interests would, you know, when you have an atmosphere where, I don't know if you remember, the embassy in Houston was like closed down and vandalized. Do you remember that? I mean, a lot has happened in this new Cold War. Um, 
when you have that kind of atmosphere, when you're constantly being accused of spying and you know that the intelligence agencies are all up in the technology, it's one of the reasons the Great Firewall even exists for whatever people have criticisms of it. A big reason is because Google, Facebook, these kind of apps have a real uh, surveillance nature to them. You can't say that um, these apps can just exist in a vacuum and not have interference. I mean, we're experiencing it in just our personal lives, our data being gobbled up. But then you also have the fact that uh, these apps are working with the military intelligence state. We were talking about the Australian Strategic Policy Institute before with the Xinjiang report. I don't know if you all remember, but uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute also has a relationship with Twitter where they basically go around trying to take down accounts that say the wrong thing in their opinion about Xinjiang or about anything really with regards to China. And so in that kind of atmosphere, I mean, how can you have freedom of commerce in that way, the freedom of information when you have a hostile entity like the United States, an empire, willing to use any means at its disposal, including social media corporations, as weapons of regime change and weapons of war? Like, that's just, it's just not realistic. And so, you know, it's all it's all about this legacy with the war on terror because the war on terror helped create the the deepest rudiments and roots of something, of course, that I think was always inherent in the U.S. system, always inherent in the U.S. system, this kind of repression, endless war. But it was intensified to a degree that it reached a new phase in the war on terror. And now, uh, now that we're in this new Cold War, China and Russia are having though that the mechanisms developed during that period uh, pointed at them and used against them. And that's really what I believe the new Cold War is about. It's not just a shift in priorities. It's also uh, the result of a buildup, right? The militarism, the surveillance, the endless war, the scapegoating, all of it led to this moment that we're in, this multipolarity versus unipolarity moment, great power competition, all the things that's been called. Um, it's led to the war on terror really led to this moment. So with that said, everyone, I don't see anyone else in the queue. So I may close up shop now unless anybody has anything they would like to add. I do want to say that um, I have a really exciting guest lineup on the left lens. Let me do a few things before I go. I'm going to send the high-speed rail article because it's one of my proudest. I, I did it for covert action. Um, I'm going to send you that article in the chat. Um, I did it for covert action, which is a great independent uh, media uh, site. Uh, because I think Amanda's the, what Amanda brought up was so interesting. Uh, and it reminded me of this article that I wrote. So I definitely want to share that with all of you. So it's there. I'm also going to share my YouTube channel because I have some really incredible guests coming up. I'm going to try to have the Duran on, try to have Vijay Prashad. Uh, I'm going to try to have Noam Chomsky on, talk about their new book, which has to do with the aftermath, the withdrawal, it's called. I have a lot of interesting folks coming on. Ben Norton is coming on this Thursday. So uh, a lot of interesting conversations, a lot of interesting things. So I put the YouTube channel in the chat as well. And then um, I am going to um, uh, just say that in order to support this work, you know, the best thing you can do is become a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. It's in the link in my um, in my uh, bio here on Colin. You can also um, find the link. I'm going to put it in the chat as well. Um, I'm going to put it in the chat as well for all of you to support the work. It's going to be a busy, but I think uh, really interesting uh, next couple of weeks ahead, ha getting these guests on. Um, and, and yeah, that's what I have in store. I'm taking a little bit of break from the writing, but I hope to also uh, get back to writing. I did write about, and I'll share that as well. So I said I take a little bit of a break, and I, I had an opinion piece for CGTN um, about the Human Rights Report. So I don't know if you were able to uh, catch that, um, but I want to share it with you. Uh, 
because I think it's a good article. I think the editing was a little too heavy. I don't tell him I said that. Um, but you know, for the, for the purpose of time, uh, it was published and it's, it's, it still holds up. It still holds up. Um, but uh, I'm just going to send that to you now as well, because I want to share my work with all of you who were able to make this Sunday conversation. So all those links you can find in the chat. With that said, everyone, I think that this was a great program. Uh, share this, uh, share the playback. Have a good Sunday. I hope you all can tune out a lot of the American exceptionalist garbage you'll probably be hearing from the media all day long today uh, talking about how great America is, how the United States did nothing wrong this whole period since 9-11 and that it's only a victim, et cetera, et cetera. We can really remember those who uh, died on September 11th as real victims of the U.S. foreign policy regime of a warmongering state that existed before 2001 and that only intensified after 2001. I hope that we can remember them as victims of that so that we can continue to spread that message of peace. All right. So thank you, everyone. Take care. And I will see you again soon. All right. Bye-bye.